What did you want to do when you grew up? I think of schools that are getting ready to celebrate graduations. They will also be celebrating kindergarten graduations. And a good question for every kindergartner is, what do you want to do when you grow up? It made me think of my own kindergarten graduation. For the longest time, I wanted to be a garbage man. Because who wouldn't want to ride on the back of a truck just by holding on with your hand, right? At my kindergarten graduation, I said I want to be a police officer. It was a noble job, but if you know me, I would make a very bad police officer. But the same question goes as what did you not want to be when you grew up? For me, the first time I experienced this revelation of what I didn't want to be was when we visited a family friend, a mortician. He took me in the back room. I knew I did not belong in a morgue. Just took one time. But ironically, something in my life as a young child If you would have asked me, what do I not want to be when I grow up, I specifically had said this before, a Presbyterian minister. (laughs) Joke's on me. Why did I not want to become a Presbyterian minister? Well, in my house, we grew up as Methodists. I was taught that... Presbyterians teach something that was a swear word in my house. I don't know what type of swear words you have or might be just hanging over your houses. But Presbyterians taught something called Calvinism. Calvinism was a swear word in my house. If you don't know what Calvinism means, it basically is this understanding of how God has predestined all things. Everything that has happened, everything that will happen, and is under his divine control. Now, this isn't what Calvinism should mean, but in our common vernacular, that is what Calvinism means. And I didn't want to be that way. Because I was taught that Calvinism removes God's grace. Calvinism reveals a God who isn't loving, but who is harsh. And as I said earlier, I dreaded this sermon all week. And I've asked the Lord for guidance and grace. Although I wholeheartedly believe in predestination, in Calvinism, as a doctrine that actually reveals God's love for his people. It is one to be taught that is extremely delicate and it's difficult. R.C. Sproul says in this short book, no doctrine in the Christian faith engenders more debate than the doctrine of predestination. It has fueled many midnight discussions and fierce social media debates. 
not only are people significantly divided over their views of predestination, they're also profoundly divided on how the doctrine should be treated. So why do we treat it this morning? We treat it because we want to be faithful to the scriptures. R.C. Sproul also points out that everyone must deal with predestination. It's not a word that was created by Augustine. It's not a word that was created by Luther or even John Calvin. It is a word that we find in our Bibles. And anyone who is convinced of the authority and the inerrancy of scriptures must recognize that we must submit to its teaching and somehow explain what this word means. But also in our confession, the last paragraph on the chapter about predestination, this is what it says. This doctrine is a high mystery and is supposed to be handled with special prudence and care. So there's two things that I want to tell you this morning. First, what I'm not going to do. This is what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to say that you have to believe this in the same way that I believe it to be a member of Christ Presbyterian Church. I'm also not going to look down upon you if you don't agree with me. My mother doesn't agree with me. And although I might look down on her for some reasons, this is not one of them. <laughs> She's going to listen to that later. Sorry, Mom. I'm also not going to answer all your questions. You might have a particular situation, a hypothetical situation that needs special attention. Please come to me and let's talk about it. Come speak to any of our elders and some of our deacons. There it is. But let us study the scriptures together. Let us ask questions, hard questions together and learn from one another. But here, here's my goal for this morning. This is what I am going to do this morning. I'm going to look at this text and read it as for what it says. The apostle John, the apostle that was loved by Jesus, wrote these words about the deep things of God to bring the church hope. We're also going to look very briefly, at the Gospel of John as a whole. Because this question about divine sovereignty and human responsibility goes throughout the entire book, as it does throughout the entire scriptures. How can these two things be true? My college professor always said, there are three difficult mysteries of scripture. You've heard me say them before. How do we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? How do we understand that Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God? The third, he said, how do we understand divine sovereignty? God is in control of all things and human responsibility. We are required to believe in Jesus. For we know that the, all of John's gospel is an appeal to what? It was written that you might believe. 
What I'm also going to do is I'm also going to pray for understanding. That the Holy Spirit might reveal the truth about his word when my small mind can barely grasp it. And the last thing I want to do in this passage, ultimately, and what I hope you will see, is that this passage will bring God glory. Because that is everything that God does. Bring himself glory. And that's the, that's the question I want to answer at the end of this passage. What is God's glory? Because if we can't answer that, passage, that question, we will never understand hard passages like this. I also wanted to comment, I'm indebted to a good minister of the gospel, John Piper, this morning. He preached and wrote on this topic. And so if you go and listen to, I recommend go and listen to his sermon. But a lot of what he said you will hear this morning. Because I hope as you do, when you need help with difficult passages, you go to someone who's gone before you. And as he said, as I came to this passage, I was flabbergasted. I hit my head on my desk asking, what am I supposed to do with this? But by God's mercy and grace, he revealed himself to me and his love for his church. And as someone told me this week, why don't you just skip it? I cannot do that. As much as I wanted to, especially on Mother's Day, I wanted to skip it. As I said last week, these verses at the end of chapter 12 are ending Jesus' public ministry. The beginning of chapter 13, Jesus enters the upper room where he, for the next four chapters, he is speaking only to his disciples. The last time the public will see Jesus is at his trial before his crucifixion. And so what he's saying here is vitally important. Last week we ended in verse 36, which is the last, the last line of actually the paragraph. Verse 36 is split in between two paragraphs. Last week, this is what we read from Jesus. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him. This passage sets this tension. Believe in Jesus. Everything that he has done in his ministry, everything that he has taught throughout this entire gospel is to force us to see him as the son of God and believe upon him. Yet we have this stark contrast. After everything he had done, there were those who did not believe. This verse 37 summarizes this entire text from 37 to 43. But though everything that he had done Though they had saw the signs, 
He had fed 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and a fish. He had turned water into wine. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And though they saw these things, they did not believe in him. And this is what John has been preparing us for. For in John chapter 1, verse 11, he tells us, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his people did not receive him. Jesus' ministry from beginning announced that there would be some who would not believe him, some that would reject him. And this passage explains why. Why there were some who did not receive him. And there's two things that are revealed from this. God is in control from beginning to end. From John chapter 1 to John chapter 12, God is in control. There's a second thing that this reveals. The catastrophic reality that Israel was condemned. And they were condemned because they did not believe. John Piper says, this is not a theological deduction. This is an exegetical induction. We get this from the text. And this is, this is what it says. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. The so that tells us they did not believe to fulfill the words of Isaiah. The therefore, in verse 39, therefore they could not believe fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. God in his eternal plan to bring redemption to the world was planned, foreordained, and orchestrated that some would not believe. That's what this text says. Yet at the same time, we see that their unbelief was due to their own sin. It does not contradict personal responsibility that if you see the signs of Jesus, if you hear the words of Jesus, that you are not guilty for your unbelief. And this is where we need help. Because most of the time we read this text and we see as God being unjust. What kind of God would do something like that? But this passage must be read in the context of all of John's gospel. It also must be read with the lens of John 3.16, which we all know. 
John 3, 16 to 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but listen to this, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are saved from your sins. That's the purpose of this whole book. Believe in Jesus. Yet John goes on. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Remember where we left off last week? Jesus said, I am the light. I am in your midst. Believe in me while I am still here. Unbelief is worthy of condemnation. Because unbelief leads us deeper into sin. Sin is what brings condemnation. It means you are guilty in front of a holy God. Jesus had given them so many things, and they did not believe. You know, I've been, I've, I've been watching the NBA playoffs. Man, they go on late. But there's a commercial that has continually come on over and over and over. And it's this new medicine um, for people that have MS, um, multiple sclerosis. And this commercial, one of the main points, other than buy this product, it, it will make you better. One, one, one thing that this commercial continues to say is that your MS does not define you. It's just part of what makes you, you. But what John has told us and what Scripture is testifying to us is that our sin is what defines us. Our sin is what gives us our identity because in our sin we remain in the one who is sinful. It's not just part of you. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, you have an identity change. You have experienced a spiritual resurrection from the dead. And when Jesus returns, you will experience a physical resurrection from the dead. But what scripture reveals to us, what's so hard for us to understand, is there is no neutral person. God does not come dispensing grace, looking at each of us and saying, I'm sending you to heaven, I'm sending you to hell, because we're some way neutral before him. The grace of the gospel is we all deserve hell. And God loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us. That anyone who would believe shall be saved from their sins. That is what this text is teaching. And then John tells us why this is blinding. 
why this apparent hardening came upon Israel. And he quotes two passages from Isaiah. The first passage you should know. We, we read it over Easter. It's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what we have heard, who, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But here, here's the problem with our understanding of the Old Testament, is when we read passages like this, we think John is only talking about this verse. But when John is writing this to the early church, he would have known that they would know the context of what this is, in which this is written. This is the suffering servant. This is Isaiah 52 to 53, when we see the servant, the Messiah of God, that he will come to redeem the world. Upon him will our transgressions be put. He will be crushed for the sins of his people. Who's going to believe in that? Who's going to believe in that type of Messiah? Who's going to believe that the arm of the Lord, the power of God that brings redemption, who is going to believe that it's going to be that kind of Messiah who's going to save his people? As we saw a few weeks ago, the triumphal entry, that's not the type of Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a Messiah that would come in as a conquering king, not as a humble servant. And then John quotes another passage from Isaiah, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, He has blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn that I might, that they might, that I might heal them. This is the commissioning call of Isaiah. And Isaiah is given this vision. Of Jesus, what John tells us in verse 41, he sees Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, in his throne where his throne room is so filled with his glory that you cannot go into it. These are the two extremes of this Messiah, of this God who came to save his people. One who fills every room with his glory and one who is humble and lonely and takes the pain of the world upon himself. What is John doing? John has given us these two extremes. A God that has all glory and a God who humbles himself and removes himself from his glory to save the world. How does this make Israel not believe? Because this isn't the Messiah that they want. They don't want a lowly Savior. And they don't want an almighty Savior. They want a Savior that they can carve and control. Because they don't want to give up their own glory. They want to keep some of the glory for themselves. They also don't want a Savior who's going to lose all of their glory. Because who wants to believe in a Savior that looks like that? How does God make it so that they cannot believe? He sends them this kind of Savior. One that they do not want, but one that God knows that they need. And they will reject him. Because their eyes 
are so caught up in their own glory, they do not want to see the glory of the Son of God who has come to redeem them from their sins, and they will harden their hearts. Yet this is what Jesus says and what God himself says. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then the voice of heaven came, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus came that we might see the radiance of God's glory that should fill all of creation, but we cannot see it because of our sin. And Jesus came as the suffering servant that we might see the God who loves us so much that he took everything we deserve and put upon himself, and we could not see it because of our sin. And typically when we think of this type of hardening, that God would harden the heart of Israel, much like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Typically, we think this hardening is a violation of God over the human will. But if you remember, when God promises the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 11 and chapter 36, what does God promise the people? He says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove their heart of stone and I will give them hearts of flesh. God is not hardening. He is not making us sinful. He's pushing us deeper into our sin if we do not see Jesus. But by his grace, by his grace, by the preaching of the gospel, by the promise of the Holy Spirit, some of us, our hearts have been changed. And what Israel was saying is we don't want this type of God. Is that what you're saying in your heart this morning? We don't want this type of God who is filled and who deserves all glory because I want to keep some for myself. And this is where our struggle begins. Well, not begins. This is where we struggle. Why did God choose it this way? Typically, I, this is when we hear the question, how could God condemn the innocent? The innocent person who has never heard the gospel. And this is what R.C. Sproul says. The innocent people in the world have nothing to fear. The innocent people do not have to worry about God's judgment. The innocent people of the world are safe. Here's the problem. There are no innocent people. In my communicants class, one of the passages I have the children memorize is Genesis 6, 5. 
that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of their thought of his heart was only evil continuously. This is the message of Scripture. We are dead in our sins. We have all fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. So this is where we come up with, you know, this flimsy title. Is Jesus a universalist? Well, it depends what type of universalist you might think. He's not a universalist in that all will be saved. That is what this passage teaches. Jesus is a universalist. All deserve to die because of their sin. It's not a healthy person that needs a physician. And typically when I talk to someone, this is where we come up with the question is, again, why? If God is a God of, lo- of love, why does this happen? Does not God love all the people of the world? And when I hear that, this is what I say. Do you think you care more about those people than God does? Because let's, let's be honest. Where does all the gospel narratives end? They all end with a commission. Go and tell the world that the God of love, the God of light has come to save you in Jesus Christ. Do we as a church fall into this self-righteousness that we support missionaries and we care about God's mission to the world? Do we say to ourselves, oh, we are doing something. And yet our eyes are blinded of the magnitude of how much the world needs Jesus. God commanded us to go to the nations. He has revealed to us what he is doing, what he has done in Christ. How can we say he does not care about them? Are we saying what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6? Here I am, Lord, send me. Saving the world isn't just something that missionaries do. It's not just something that pastors do. It's not something that church officers do. It is what the church does. We lift high the cross to draw the nations to Jesus so that the world can praise his name. And lastly, I want us to look, do I know? How how do we know that this is true? How do we know that what this is what this text is saying? That people were, that Israel rejected God because he demanded all the glory for himself. Right? Isaiah chapter 6, they, they saw all of God's glory and they despised it. Isaiah 53, they saw the lowliness of God and his glory and they denied it. Read with me the next verses. 
verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, many of them, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In John chapter 5, verse 44, we read something very similar. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the Father? This is a glory passage. This is something that is put in Scripture so that the church might see, that the church might praise the glorious name of Jesus Christ because he has come into the world to save us from our sins. Without him, there is no hope. In this gospel, Jesus is in control from beginning to end. In this gospel, we merit nothing. We do not deserve salvation. It is a gift from the merciful and gracious hand of a God who loves us and who bore our sins for us so that we wouldn't have to. Here's why these passages are here. This passage isn't here to harden your heart. This passage is here to plea, believe in Jesus. He is the only Savior of the world. He is our only hope of salvation. And if you see Jesus and you don't think that God loves you, you remain in your sin. Don't do what many people did when they saw Jesus. And here's the great, the great message of the Gospel of John. Many came. Many believed. Many experienced a new birth. Many understood that they were chosen by the love of the Father and given to the Son that they might experience the redemption from their sins. That they might not be slaves to Satan any longer. Everything the Father has done, everything the Son accomplished, and everything that the Spirit applies to us is so that we might glorify the Father. Predestination, this teaching of predestination, many see it as a stumbling block of, of believing in God. But do you know why predestination is in the scriptures? So that we might have hope. Because if our salvation is left to ourselves, we have no hope. Our only hope is Jesus. And this is why we come to the table. Do you know why we come to this table? We come to this table to proclaim we are a people 
without the mercy and the grace of the Father given to us in Jesus Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, we are nothing. We should be condemned for our sins. But because of the hope, because of the love, because of God's plan of salvation was accomplished in Christ for the glory of his name. Let's pray.